Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli military and security experts and practitioners. I am Amir Oren and our guest today is a cabinet minister, the Minister for Diaspora Affairs, retired or reserve Brigadier General Nachman Shai. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, some Israeli uh, politicians uh, are former military officers. Several of your colleagues uh, today have come from the media side of the business. But it seems as if uh, you are the only one in Israeli uh, public life with such a varied composition of seeing the media-military relationship and the use of uh, information warfare from so many different angles. And let me just uh, count them off. Uh, you have been a practicing journalist, uh, a combat correspondent. Then uh, you have been uh, a spokesperson for two of Israel's most important diplomatic missions in the UN and in the uh, Washington Embassy. Uh, you have been the media advisor for two Israeli ministers of defense who also happened to have been former ambassadors to Washington. Then you ran the uh, IDF radio station. You uh, were uh, called back into uniform as a brigadier general, as the IDF spokesperson. And then on and on, um, you had other positions. Also, you wrote your PhD and published uh, about uh, the uh, media and the military. So, Nachman, uh, thank you again. Thank you, Amir. You know my CV better than I do. Uh, when you went over from uh, the uh, journalism side of the house to working for the government in uh, New York at the uh, UN mission and then in Washington for the embassy, did it change the way you saw how government works? It should change. Not every government understands the, the new environment, the ecosystem that we are now working in. Uh, we have to remember that uh, the media, the traditional media, even the one that we are now uh, talking uh, in, uh, has s dramatically changed. And now the social media um, has a growing share in the market. And if you, as a spokesperson for whatever, government, embassy, IDF, any, any organization, the social media is the primary uh, floor to use in order to approach, to reach out to as many as possible um, individuals all over the world. But these individuals are partly in your own country. They are part well, of your target audience, including those who serve in the military, but also their families and other civilians. Some are your enemies or the population of your enemies, and some are, as you say, around the world, people who are interested and who may influence decision makers in those countries. So how do you tailor well, your message and the medium you use uh, when you have so many different audiences? That's, that's one of the major challenges. Because at the time, when I was much younger, 
I'm not talking about you, but but we both were much younger. You can separate between your messages inside the country and outside the country. We call them the Israeli, there was a Israeli media and the foreign media, which meant the foreign core. Uh, but now it's all, it merged into one big media, one big audience, and you cannot separate your messages. Never mind, by the way, which language you even use. They, they sound the same and you can translate them immediately while you are broadcasting them. So at the end of the day, one message, one people. That's, that's the bottom line. Uh, and you have to now work very hard that different audiences will get that message in the way that you would like or expect them to get, which makes it much harder than it has ever been. Some 20 years after you started out, uh as a journalist and uh, went on to serve in New York and Washington and the defense ministry's uh, uh, office in, in Tel Aviv, you became the IDF spokesperson and you found yourself in the middle of a war. But this was a very unique war from an Israeli uh, perspective because Israel was only the target, only the victim. It did not take part in it uh, proactively. How did you manage Um, to uh, fill your position, especially when there was no government spokesperson. And it fell to you no. during the 1991 war. When the first uh, salvo of um, Iraqi Scud missile landed in Israel uh, at, uh, on the 17th, January 17th, early in the morning, I was home. And then while driving to the army headquarters in Tel Aviv, I realized that there was a lot of chaos in the, in the, in the media, electronic media. And I decided to take uh, the floor and to address the Israelis. You decided? I decided by my own initiative. I said to myself, that's intolerable that so many people speak, no one knows anything. And the, 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 the listeners, the audience on the other side were probably very confused. So I said, let's, let's try and clear the picture a, a little bit. And this is 2, 3, 4 a.m.? It was two, two and a half, something like that, half past two. <clears throat> I was on my, on my own in the car with my, my driver and I said, okay, let's see, Tal, what we can do. And I called the studio and said, well, let me talk. And said, do you know anything? I said, I, I believe I know more than you, but I don't know enough. And the first message was very much kind of calming down the Israelis just by using the floor by an Israeli official. Let, let me interject. The fear uh, at the time, not knowing what was happening, was that uh, Saddam had chemical exactly. uh, warheads. Not uh, a or biological Or biological, or biological. Not, not a conventional That's true. Um, high explosive Awful, no. charge, which Israelis have become used to, not in Tel Aviv. But not in Tel Aviv, not in the heart of the country. This was also something very new, new experience for the Israelis that suddenly rockets, missiles landed in the heart of the country. We have experienced that since then a few times, but this was the, a precedent for the first time in Israel's history. Almost. So go ahead. Yeah, and so I said to myself, okay, what can you do? And I tried to tell the Israelis just to make the, uh, the ordinary, to take the ordinary, ordinary steps to push their gas masks on, to get into a sealed room, which we, every Israeli had a kind of a sealed room, uh, and uh, all the family should get together, listen to the radio, watch television, and wait. And uh, it took a few hours. 
Before I came to the head, military headquarters, I got directly in, instructions from the chief of staff of the Ministry of Defense. And from that on, I became the single one communicator between the military and the government later on and the Israeli politics, uh, the Israeli people. One single voice. This was unique because no one was competing with me. And I was just telling the Israelis uh, what to do a minute after a minute, an hour after a minute, until the all clear sign came and they could go, go back to normal so, life. So, as you say, there was a minister of defense, your old boss, uh, Misha Ahrens. Ahrens. Uh, there was the chief of staff, Dan Shomron. The late. Uh, not always on the same page, uh, for instance, regarding retaliation in Iraq. Right. There was Prime Minister Shamir. And, um, he was uh, very quiet. He was very quiet. He let, let you uh, have the floor. And he had a deputy minister named Bibi Netanyahu, wow. whom you knew from your uh, days in Washington uh, again. How did you coordinate between all of these personalities and, and their different interests? The first three said to me, you go ahead. We just shut up our mouths. And we believe this is the right system. With Netanyahu, it's a different matter. You can't say to Netanyahu, don't speak. And he was running the, let's say, the political diplomatic campaign. Uh, I was in charge of the military and he was in charge of the political military. And so we had uh, a kind of uh, press conferences, not at the same time, because I said, Netanyahu, I'm not going to uh, compete and to run against you at the time. And so you'll run yours and I'll do mine. And it works very well, by the way, because one of the secrets of success in times like that is to coordinate all the players in one single system. And in Israel's history, there were no many times where the Ministry of Defense and the Foreign Affairs Ministry agreed to talk to each other and to carry the same message out of the country. Netanyahu and I managed to set up a pre precedent of working together. But Netanyahu was no longer with the foreign minister, David Levy. He went over to the prime minister's uh, office. Later on. And, and the foreign ministry was not very ah, central okay. to this uh, Yeah, But Netanyahu operation. was a spokesperson, an outspokesperson outspo in terms of he spoke a lot. And he became a hero in a way because he knew how to use the media, as always. He used to come to the studio. A siren went on, went on and here is Netanyahu putting his... In this building, by the way, in the, this, this CNN headquarters was located in this building. Netanyahu pulls his gas mask on and was rah, 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 throwing the gas mask. It made him a hero. Me too, in a way. But again, Netanyahu is a different category. Did the military uh, ask you, as uh, its a spokesperson, you were a member of the general staff, you took part in all of uh, the uh, uh, decision-making uh, sessions, did uh, they ask you uh, to lie a little, to hide a little, um, for operational security or, in, or for deterrence? What, what was uh, no. uh, the doctrine? You can't lie. You shouldn't lie. Let's start from there. First of all, Israel is a small country. Rumors fly very fast. Even if you try to hide the truth, it will come out. At the time, it was a matter of few hours. Now it's a matter of few seconds. Seconds in this era of these uh, secret weapons. So it was clear to me at the time not to lie. The policy was tell the, the public as much as, as you know as, as much as, as you can share with them. That's it. 
And I was very careful. I was checking the information and then go on, on air, radio, television, and deliver the, the, deliver the information. Uh, but I never lied. Sometimes I didn't tell the whole truth because it was preliminary. It hasn't been che- che- checked yet. So it took some time. But at the end of these three, four hours, the public knew everything. And I think that worked very well because the percentage of confidence of the, gov- the, the people in me as an IDF spokesperson was around 100%. At least 100. There's nothing more than a 100, so I was very happy. But literally, uh, the IDF itself was a little bit lower. People trusted me. And this was the secret, again, of success. Was the, the fact that you wore your uniform, that you had your Brigadier General's uh, rank on, that you looked military, you were not in a suit and tie. Was that an important part? First of all, I looked much younger. Then, I mean, 30 years younger, I can give you pictures. I don't believe this was me. But the secret was that I was, uh, and you actually mentioned it, a, a combat uh, war reporter. I used to cover wars and military affairs for Israeli radio and television. So I knew the technique, how to um, digest somehow, to, de- to, to develop the information from um, the military staff to the civilian one. And I used to say what my mother, my mother should understand what I'm saying. It was just an example. You talk to 60-year-old kids and to 60, over 61, and they all had to understand and to follow your uh, instructions. So I had to, to speak slowly and clearly, not using any military terms, to smile and to advise them to drink water. The water became the key code of the world, of the of the war. Water, drink water like this. Keep calm and carry on. Now, um, one of the issues we mentioned regarding uh, the dispute between the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the General Staff and others, the Air Force Chief, uh, had to do with whether Israel should take part in offensive operations, uh, whether uh, for uh, trying to suppress the Iraqi missiles or for deterrence in order for the legacy of the IDF to remain as always responding. And this uh, was probably a problem for you because you had to maneuver between deterring and not telling the enemy too much about plans. How did yeah, you go first of all, it? First of all, you're right. It was quite a tricky, tricky game here. Uh, we decided at the end of the day not to respond, which was a very, I would say, crucial and unprecedented decision in Israeli history because uh, it worked against our ethos that we never let the enemy attack us. And if he does, it, we will respond immediately uh, and, and, and hit him uh, strongly. But... We were smart, I would say, and we decided uh, to wait and see how things develop. I'm not speaking about whether it was possible or impossible to react. It was just a matter of taking the time, being patient, and said to ourselves, okay, let the war continue because Iraq, as you said, was under pressure. Finally, it surrounded to the allies' forces, and it worked very well for Israel. Of course, the point is that a precedent was set here that Israel observed the war and did not respond. 
Since then, we, I believe we changed our policy. We respond on any given uh, attack on Israel. Even a balloon from the southern border would be responded right away by the Israeli force, air force. Are there different approaches to when you fight a country like Iraq or Syria, and when you fight an organization, a subnational entity like Hezbollah or Hamas? Of course. Uh, with the first, uh, the first example, this is an all-out war, which we try to um, um, avoid as much as possible. With those um, uh, terror states, we call them terror states, the one in Gaza, the one in Lebanon, the one over, almost in, in the Sinai for a while, uh, we take action, we are proactive, and it's fully, uh, it enjoys fully legitimacy by the international community. When you hit terror organizations, Wherever they are, uh, the international community will uh, appreciate that and let you go on your own way, unless you hit civilians. And unless it's what we call dis disproportional. The question of disproportional is crucial. What does it mean proportional and disproportional in circumstances like that? Now, uh, you have spent um, many years uh, in, in several iterations in the United States, uh, both um, as uh, a diplomat and then as a, a university professor. And you have seen the American public evolve in its relationship uh, with the military, the media, and its uh, views of what is happening in the Middle East. Did you find that once the United States um, has been attacked, uh, we are now uh, marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and the United States uh, has responded uh, to terrorists, has uh, also undertaken uh, what Israel uh, calls uh, focused killings and the Americans targeted uh, uh, killings. Did you see that the spokesperson's uh, job is easier, the Israeli one, easier in the United States because now the American public is more yeah. used to it? I think there's a greater understanding of what Israel is doing. And not only in the United States, but all around the, the globe. Uh, the, the, unfortunately, since in the past 20 years, but actually, uh, Amir, even before, we, had, we just don't remember that. But you remember in the 70s, there, were, uh, there was a, a wave of terror in Europe in, and, and, and elsewhere. The Red Brigade, the, 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 the army, and so on and so forth. So it's not the first time in the world's history. But since the 11, September 11th, things have changed dramatically. Yes, it's much easier to explain what we are doing as long as the public on the other side understand that we fight terror. It doesn't always work. It's really hard. Uh, and it's, it became more harder and harder because the war on hearts and minds, which you probably will touch in a minute. But, but yes, there's greater understanding, and not only in, within states, but even in the international uh, organizations. Uh, that, yes, if we fight terror, civilians will be hurt. And also, there's no proportional or disproportional here. There's no disproportional. There's no proportional reaction to, to disproportional uh, attack on you. No. What is the Israeli narrative when there are so many parties in a coalition, not all of them agreeing about the vision for Israel? Uh, you do have some, some basic uh, coalition guidelines, but yet uh, you try to avoid controversial issues. 
what's the narrative that the spokesperson comes out with? Does Israel want peace? Does it want the status quo? What, what does Israel want? In principle, peace. And we want quiet borders. And we enjoy, um, luckily, two borders with Egypt and, and Jordan, which we have uh, peace agreements with. And we are looking for more of them. Uh, actually, we reached at least some in the past year with UAE, with Bahrain, uh, with Morocco, with Sudan. So we are doing quite well after all, but uh, not enough. This, this still at the heart of the problem is our relationship with the Palestinians, those who live in the territory, Georgia, Samaria, Lebanon in a way, and of course, uh, Gaza. When it comes to our message to them is sit still, don't try to terrorize us, uh, don't fire anything into our territory, a rocket, balloon, mortar, whatever, and then you will enjoy quiet life. But if you turn our life to hell, you will suffer much more. And that's, that's, that's the message. This is the, the deterrence that we try to convey to them. And it's based on, if you ask me politically, it's the policy of the government, the entire government from right, center to left, eight parties. It's the first coalition ever in Israel's history with eight parties. But when it comes to Israel's defense and security, we share the same ideas and the same ideology. Now, 30 years after you served, as you mentioned, uh, as a general officer on the general staff, you uh, found yourself uh, a cabinet minister mm. uh, in, the, in the government. Two questions. First uh, of all, uh, what is the more serious forum of the two? I mean, in comparison with the chief of staff and the government, I'm surprised, by the way, by the by the government uh, internal uh, uh, discourse. Uh, people, the, the members of the government, respect each other. I don't. I know maybe it's also a new development in our politics. They listen to each other. Uh, they talk briefly and they don't take uh, too long. Uh, I mean, too long speeches. Because you are the elder statesman now. I am the government. elder statesman, but um, I'm not the eldest uh, member of the call of the government. So it's a different categories. Uh, but uh, there's at the end of the discussion, the the the, the, the prime minister concludes the the topic and he. Makes the takes a vote. First of all, in the chief of staff, you don't vote. Secondly, in comparison with the chief of staff meetings, on the cabinet, everything is leaked. In real time, by the way, real time. I'm really shocked to see that while we are in the room, some information from the government meetings is getting out. When I'm out of the meeting, I already get calls from the media. Would you come to the studio and follow up your statement? I said, how do you know what I said? They laughed. They said, we know everything you said. By WhatsApp or because people told them beforehand what they are going to say? No, this was the custom at, at, at the time. And then, you know what happened? Many cases, the minister were not given the right to speech. And then they said, but but you told us in advance. He said, never mind, didn't work. No, in our case, not WhatsApp. I think they go out of the meeting and leak the information. But we are very careful because uh, we have a, a security cabinet. And from there, nothing is being leaked. So it's it works quite well. From the Corona cabinet... Everything is white, transparent, but that's fine. We, we need the confidence of the public. Second question mm -hmm. regarding the cabinet uh, meetings. Yeah. When you observe it regarding your uh, expertise in the military media matters and uh, the war of the narratives, what one uh, may call warfare, does this aspect, this angle, enter into 
considerations? Do you mean those in the diaspora? No. Um, when the cabinet uh, decides on whether to take some action. Yes, I'm the one who will raise the issue of Jews living out of the country. I feel like they're representative in the country. This is, this is the fifth tribe. At the time, the Israeli president mentioned four tribes living in Israel, secular Jews, Orthodox, and others, never mind. But we are now, I represent the fifth, Jews living out of the country, around eight million people. And I urge the country, even formally, to take into consideration what will be the ramifications or the implications of any decision made by the government or the cabinet on Jews living out of the country. It's a nice catchphrase, the fifth tribe, but looked at from the outside, it may sound like the fifth column for and uh, dual loyalty. No, no, but it's very clear that we don't mean that they uh, uh, betray their uh, states and, and, and uh, convey information to Israel or whatever. They live hopefully safely wherever they choose to live. Uh, and this is our responsibility, by the way, by the way to provide them with uh, safety and to, to be able to uh, practice their Judaism wherever they are. Uh, but we expect government, governments, to let the Jews live their own life. And this is the responsibility or the duty of the government of Israel. One of them. Minister Nachman Shai, um, during your career, illustrious career, um, the battle of the narratives has undergone a shift. When you started out as a combat correspondent and uh, went on to become a diplomatic spokesperson, the narrative was the Arab-Israeli conflict. Yeah, Israel against the surrounding Arab states. It has been transformed into the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict, which is, of course, only one part of the larger conflict. And in this particular depiction of the conflict, Israel uh, is looked at as a Goliath against yeah. the Davids. The, 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 we, were, we were the David for a long time, until 67, and 67 war, and since then it has changed that we became the Goliath, they became the David. It doesn't work for our benefit, of course, because we are, at the end of the day, there are around 9 million Israelis. Two of them, by the way, are Arabs, living in a, in a region where there are over 300 million, maybe even higher number of Arabs. Not of them are hostile to Israel, but, but this is the core of the issue. How do we make peace with them all, where we are really a small, small, extremely small minority. Between us and the, the Palestinians, it's a different, it's a different ball game. Uh, we're also very careful not to get into an all-out war with the Muslim world, which is as big as 1.3 billion Muslims. And we do maintain quiet and, and hidden, I would say, relationship with many uh, Muslim states in the world. What should, in, in one line, what should the Israeli message be regarding Iran? Iran, you better stop your nuclear preparations yesterday because I don't know what will happen tomorrow. Brigadier General retired and Minister of Diaspora Affairs, Nachman Shai, thank you very much for being with us. And we will be back for another in the Watchmen Talk series very soon. Thank you from Jerusalem. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.